in uh, Judges chapter 8. It's on page 207 in the blue Bibles that are in the, in the seats. And I think I'm going to put um, The last two messages, we've been in this, this three-part Gideon saga. And this is the last part of Gideon's saga today. And then there's a spinoff episode that happens next week with his, uh, with his son, which I'm thankfully not preaching. Uh, Richard will be up here doing that. Um, so God has brought his people, do a little recap to know where we are. So God has brought his people, the people of Israel, to this land of Canaan to love him, to serve him, to be a blessing to the world. But they keep deciding that they don't want to do that. Instead, they're going to do the opposite of that and be a curse to each other, to this world, and ruin their relationship with God. And God lets the people go. He lets them into the hand of their enemies. And the latest of their enemies in this cycle is the Midianites. And the Midianites have been crushing Israel for seven years. They, they have to live in caves, right? Until finally the people of Israel cry out to God for help. And then God raises up this judge, Gideon, the Savior, Gideon, to save them. And in our text from last week, Gideon had these thousands of soldiers he was going to go defeat the Midianites with. But God pared it down from thousands of soldiers down to just 300 soldiers. And with these 300 soldiers, Gideon leads them to defeat 120,000 Midianites and their allies. And it's an amazing victory. And as Gideon and his men, they're, they're at, the, at the end of this battle, and they're pursuing all the leftover soldiers of the Midianites. And he calls out to the other tribes of Israel, to come and help me. Let's, let's take care of these guys once and for all. So they never have to deal with them again. And one of the tribes, Ephraim, they capture two Midianite princes, and they're these princes or generals. Their names are Oreb and Zeb. And I just want to warn you going forward in the rest of this text that all of these Midianite names, they all sound like Power Ranger villains, every single one of them. <laughs> so just be prepared for that. So they capture them, they cut off Oreb and Zeb's heads, they bring them to Gideon, and right after the Ephraimite leaders, they lug these heads up, probably hold them by the hair, they throw at Gideon's feet, they want to have a conversation with Gideon. And this is where we pick up our text in Judges chapter 8, verse 1. So we're going to read verses 1 through 17, and then we'll read the rest of it as we go through the rest of the text. So um, let's hear God speak to us. Judges 8, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 1 through 17, we'll start. This is God's word to you, to me. So then the, me the men of Ephraim said to him, Gideon, what is this you have done to us? not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezar? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted, yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hands, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered him. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. 
Now Ziba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the army of the people of the east. For there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Noboth and Zogbeha and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Ziba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunna. And he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Terah, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. And Gideon came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Ziba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hands, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness, and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Help us. Father, this is a weird text. It's a difficult text. Would you help us as we come to you to hear it? And we pray that you would set us free from sin and that you would set us free to do your will and to enjoy you forever. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I lived in South Korea for eight years, and four of those years I worked at a university teaching English. It was called Sungil de Hakyo, or Sungil University, and I was an English teacher there. And one thing I would do is any student that wanted to, like, practice their English outside of class, uh, wanted to brush up on their English, um, I would meet them in the coffee shop on campus, and if they were open to it, uh, they didn't have to, but I was like, you guys want to you read the Bible and just talk about it together? So a lot of students were actually pretty down for that. So there's this one non-Christian student. Her name is Suyun, and she was totally down for reading the Bible and talking about it. So after a few weeks of reading the Bible and talking about Jesus with her, she texted me after one of our um, times together, and she was saying that she was having this really dramatic internal experience and that she now trusted Jesus, which is awesome. So then a few months later, She's at my church, and she is going to give her testimony at my church. And I thought, oh boy, here we go. She's going to talk about me and how great of a teacher I am, how great of a person I am, <laughs> how well I explained the gospel to her, and just how thankful she is for me, right? So um, I prepare myself for this, and she's like, she's telling her story, and sh she's telling the story of, how she, of her life and kind of how she became a Christian. And I remember she spent a lot of time talking about how she volunteered when she was in high school at this like hospice kind of place and all these old people who were dying that um, had this distinct and special like uh, peacefulness about them. And they would talk to her about trusting in Jesus. And then she started talking about some other stuff and I'm just like, get to the good part. <laughs> so finally she comes around to talking about me and she's, uh, so she finally gets to talking about me, and this, she says basically this. She says, and then I met Will, and he invited me to this church, and that's where I met Jonathan, and I started doing Bible study with Jonathan, and it's been so random, blah, 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 blah. I stopped listening to her at that point, because <laughs> inside I was like, hold up, that's it? Just one sentence about me? <laughs> and it turned out, surprise, that I was not as, as important as I thought I was. <laughs> It turned out that I was just this small, small puzzle piece in the big work that God was doing in this girl's life. That was one of my takeaways. The other takeaway that was kind of um, upsetting to realize 
was that I really wanted what God was doing with Suyun, I wanted that to be about me. I wanted to twist God's plans with Suyun into being about me. I wanted the glory. I wanted to be important, and I felt really good thinking that other people were going to hear about this and how important I was. So in our text today, something similar is happening with Gideon and all the people of Israel as well. Gideon, up to this point, he's been doing, he's been receiving this crazy, gracious stuff from God in order to, in order to save Israel. God's been talking to him. God's been meeting with him. God did the miracle of the fleece with him. God led 300 soldiers to defeat 120,000. And so far, all of these judges that we've read about in the book of Judges, even Gideon, they're all exemplary. Maybe like Barak, maybe he was a little scared. But all in all, they are very, they're, they're doing great so far. And this is the point where it all starts to go downhill with Gideon. Gideon goes completely off the rails by the end of this text. So as we get into this text, here's what the big idea of this text is. The big idea in our three points, the big idea is that your purpose is your, your purpose is God's glory, not your glory. Your purpose is God's glory. Therefore, you can, these are three points, you can trust him when you are criticized. You can trust him when you are successful. And you can trust him when you are completely lost and off the rails like Gideon is. Because we often, we veer into Make, doing God's things for ourself and our glory. So let's start this with this conversation that Ephraim is having with Gideon. So Ephraim, in our first point, that trusts him when we are criticized, Ephraim was like the strongest or one of the strongest tribes of Israel. And in verse 1, the leaders come to Gideon and they accuse him for not calling them out at the beginning or before the battle starts. They're, they call him out for they call him out for not calling them out until the battle, is the main battle, is already over. Now, we don't know why Gideon called them out. My own guess, just from what we learn about Ephraim in this book, is that they wouldn't have come anyway. But maybe he didn't want this powerful tribe taking all the glory. Maybe. We don't know. Whatever it was, it hurt their feelings. They took this really personally. So Gideon responds in verse 2, responding to their accusation. He says something that probably doesn't make sense at first. You have to read it like 100 times. I did to figure out what he's saying. But he says in verse 2 and 3, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim, this big tribe, better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? That's his clan. God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? So if you boil down what he's saying, what he's basically saying is, Wow, you guys are so amazing. I've got nothing compared with y'all. Your little gleaning of the enemy captured these two huge princes. Meanwhile, our big harvest compared, captured nothing compared to what y'all got. And it's all because you're so powerful and awesome, Ephraim. So he's doing this like diplomatic flattery. He tells them how important they are, how special they are. And kind of embarrassingly, that's all they needed. And they back down and they leave him alone. And for a minute, we're going to think, wow, Gideon, this is a humble, wise dude. So we think. We'll see what happens. So then Ephraim goes home, and Gideon continues his pursuit of his last two kings of Midian, Midians, Midianites, Zeba and Zalmunna, and they run past these two Israelite towns. So these are their brothers, right? Succoth and Penuel. And his men have been running for like 30, 40 miles, 
and they're exhausted. They are hungry. And Gideon asked, can you, can y'all help us out and give those guys some food so we can continue pursuing the Midianites? But they refuse his help. They say, are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna, in verse 7, already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So they're basically saying, we're not going to help you because you haven't won yet. And we don't want the Midianites turning around, beating you. You know, imagine the scene. They're like, uh, they just saw how many? 15,000 enemy soldiers run by. And then Gideon comes by with his 300 soldiers, this ragtag group of people that drink water really weirdly, right? They're probably over there with their water bottles. (laughs) And the people of the city are like, "Uh, I think we're going to go with Midian here. I think we're going to put our ships down with Midian. Uh, We don't want them coming back and killing us after they kill you. So Gideon is pretty angry at this point, and we'll see why in a moment. But he tells them that he's not going to come back He's not going to come back without whipping them in Sukkoth and knocking down their tower. This is a tower of defense in Penuel. So then he takes off with his 300 men, and he's exhausted, and they're hungry. And amazingly, because God is at work in all this, they defeat these 15,000 men, and they capture Ziba and Zalmunna. And at this point, this is the point. Everything in Judges from here on out just unravels in these weird ways where everything is wrong. What should have happened right now is they should have had a big celebration. They just, they finally got rid of the Midianites. They should have done what Deborah did, and they should have sang a song. They should have written and sang and danced around. But instead, the first thing that Gideon does is he goes back to these towns. Verse 16 says that he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. So Gideon's kind of going berserker mode on these two villages. What's going on here? I think the big clue to what's happening here is in verse 15. I think I have a slide for that. Verse 15, before he punishes them, he parades Ziba and Zalmunna out to them. And he says to the towns, Behold, Ziba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me. Now that's an interesting thing to say. First of all, I'm not so sure that they were taunting. Were they really taunting? It seems like they were just scared. They definitely made the wrong decision. They definitely made the wrong They should have trusted in what God was doing through Gideon. But they were just scared. They didn't want to die. And Gideon should have totally resonated with, with this because he got those two you know, miracles of the fleece, right? They didn't get that. He could have been a little more sympathetic, empathetic with these, with these towns, with these villages. But it's the other word after taunt. What does he say? Because, he says, about whom you taunted me. So what's kind of interesting here is that he thinks this is all about him. This isn't about them not giving food. This isn't about how exhausted they were. This is about how they almost lost. The reason that Gideon got so mad was because Gideon's glory was attacked. He wasn't going to let them get away with taunting him. And the only way to restore it, to get his glory back, was to teach them a lesson and punish them. And what exactly, this is kind of funny, it says that they taught him a lesson in uh, verse 15. Um, It says in verse 15, he taught them a lesson with the briars. What was the lesson that they learned? Was it to trust the Lord? Was it that the Lord saves? Was it give glory to the Lord, trust him? No, (laughs) that would have been a great lesson though, wouldn't it have been a great lesson for him to come back and say, guys, look what the Lord did in our weakness. 
follow him, you people of Succoth, celebrate. Let's celebrate together. Let's trust the Lord together. That would have been a great, amazing thing for Gideon to have done in this situation. But I don't think that's what the men of Succoth learned. <laughs> what, did they, what lesson did they learn instead? They learned this lesson. Follow Gideon. Be afraid of Gideon. Do what Gideon says to do. Gideon is important. Give Gideon the glory. And what lesson did the men of Penuel learn? Nothing. He killed them. <laughs> he killed them, then he broke down the tower and left the widows and the orphans, or the, you know, the fatherless children now, without any defense in that city. It's terrible. And here we get a little bit more background for Gideon's response to Ephraim at the beginning of this, right? You know, like, there's, I think I learned this on the internet, there's this red flag. When you start dating somebody, there's these red flags you're supposed to look out for. One of them is how people treat the waiters, right? And the idea is that when you're first learning, hanging out with somebody, watch how they treat the waiter. Because how they treat people, how they treat people that are, have less power to them, shows how they're gonna, what they're going to try to get away with in, the, in all their relationships. So these towns, these villages, they are the waiter. <laughs> and you're on a date with Gideon. And this is how Gideon is treating the waiter. And this is what he can get away with if he, if he could. And this is the way he would have treated Ephraim too, but he's a, kind of a smart guy. But this is the way he would have treated Ephraim too if he could have gotten away with it. But they're just too powerful. So this is a strange place that we're at in the book of Judges with Gideon. Gideon tries to look so tough and so strong. Gideon, after this huge victory, shows himself to actually be an incredibly fragile person. The disrespect that he feels from these scared villages is consuming him. It's crushing him. It's driving him to, to do these um, wars against humanity, uh, these things against humanity here. There is a deep insecurity being revealed in Gideon in this episode that was always there. Gideon is acting so tough, like a bully, because he's so wounded by what he experiences as criticism of himself from these villages. The core of Gideon's being is under attack. There is a part of him, of Gideon, apparently, that needs validation and it needs affirmation from other people. He needs this glory from other people and the praise from other people. He needs everyone to fall in orbit around him to affirm that he is okay and he can't handle anything to the contrary. But you know, one of the greatest teachings in the Bible that is very freeing, especially for 21st century Western people, is that your life is not about you. You are not the main character. Gideon wants to be, but you are not the main character. Existence doesn't revolve around you. There are so many people like Gideon that are walking around crushed, just bearing the weight of validating their own existence all the time. It's unbearable, but they bear it. If that's what life is, though, making a reputation for yourself, making sure you're okay all the time, reaching all of your personal goals, if that's what life is fundamentally about, then when someone threatens that, then it would make sense to do what Gideon does here. It's a threat to your life, to your very existence. And you should cut off or you should destroy whoever's criticizing you or getting in your way. But thankfully, that is not what existence is about. We were made and we and Gideon were saved 
to glorify and serve something else, someone else. This is where my meaning lies, in serving someone else, in enjoying and serving and obeying and loving God, the Lord. And when your life is for the glory of the Lord, if, you're, if your life is to make him look good, to, pers- to pursue his goals, to get validation from him, which he lavishes on us as we trust in Jesus, you can more and more easily let all that stuff go. Let the criticism go. Let that nagging sense that your life is worthless, the nagging sense that you, you are, your existence is uh, not validated, is not valid. You can let that go because I don't care. I am trusting and I am living for someone else, not myself. The more concerned that you are with glorifying God by trusting him, doing what he says, thinking about and caring about what he thinks about you, the less criticism crushes you. This isn't about me and validating my existence. My purpose is to glorify and serve God. Gideon could have walked by this town and be like, told ya, right? But he took this so personally because it was a threat to his very existence. If your purpose is to glorify God, then you can trust him when you are criticized, when things start to fall apart. And also, part, uh, point two, you can trust him when you're criticized, you can also trust him when you are successful. So when things are going wrong, and you're criticized, and when things are going right. Part two of our story continues, and Gideon continues to locate his purpose in his own glory. And it plays out here in verse 18 through 21. Then he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Zalmunna said, rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. So Gideon is done teaching these towns a lesson. He turns, it seems like he gets a message or something about what happened at Tabor. Tabor is this area with a, with a mountain on it. And apparently his brothers were there. And apparently Ziba and Zalmunna killed his brothers. And then a couple things happen that are an un, more unraveling of Gideon. First, he re, this is interesting. He reveals to Ziba and Zalmunna that he was planning on keeping them alive. Now, if you're following, you should probably wonder at this point, wait, why are they still <laughs> alive? Because God's method for Israel in operations like this is rarely, if ever, to leave you know, military enemies alive. Israel doesn't take prisoners. They don't take you know, slave prisoners or anything like that. Or they're not supposed to anyway. Apparently, according to Gideon, he had been planning on keeping the kings of Midian alive. And you know what you call somebody who's walking around towing two kings around with their big ornate camels. You know what you call them? You call him a king of kings. So he's messed up in not killing them, first of all. But then he decides that he is going to kill them. <laughs> but it's not because God wants him to do it. It's be- his own personal vengeance. He's going to murder these two guys like he murdered the people in these villages. He's going to murder them. So first he tells his young, his child to do it, which is kind of weird. And... Uh, this is another kingly thing. You know, he's establishing a dynasty for himself. He's going to have a son that's going to be like the king killer growing up. Everybody's going to fear him. 
And this is like just beyond our text. We're not going to get to this. But he names one of his sons Abimelech. And Abimelech literally means uh, my father is king. <laughs> and one more thing, he also starts up a harem. He's got tons of concubines and wives and tons of, uh, he's got like 70-something sons. This is not something ordinary people do. This is something that kings do. Notice, God has given Gideon all this success. He's worked through Gideon to take down this large army, to defeat these two kings for Israel. And what's it all going to end up going to be to be about himself, his own glory? This is exactly, by the way, what the Lord had warned when he pared down the army down to 300. Remember, he didn't want Israel to think that and boast in their own power. They wanted Israel to boast in his power, that he's obviously the one doing all this. So when God gives success, when he helps us, when he saves us, there is before us, I think at least, if these are the two main options, give the glory to God or give the glory to myself. And when we say success here, that includes anything that is considered a plus for you, anything that's a plus in your life, a great day at work, a great career, the end of a great career, if you're a student, whenever you get a good grade or a teacher gives you a compliment or you do really well at sports or something, or, and this is kind of more in line with this text in Gideon, obeying Jesus and trusting in him like Gideon did leading this army, trusting Jesus and obeying him and putting sin to death and obeying him in some new, deeper way. The appropriate response is not, I'm so smart. I am such a hard worker. My own hand has done this. I get the glory. Yet, there is something inside of me, maybe it's inside of you too, <laughs> where this is what I want. I want to do something where I can finally say, I did this without God. I did this without anybody's help. I did this, it's me. I am the goat. I am the greatest of all time in this thing. Isn't, maybe there's a place in you, there's a place in me that is desperate to have some success or achievement or anything where I can finally say, I did this all by myself. I did something good on my own. I built this by myself, despite so many haters. I did something right all by myself, and I didn't need any help. It all came from here. My existence is validated. I did this. But the appropriate right response for any kind of success we enjoy, for any kind of blessing we get, for any kind of obedience that we, that we do for God, the appropriate response, Jesus says it in Luke chapter 17. He tells this mini parable in Luke chapter 17. He says, will any one of you, this is Jesus talking, who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? No, he wouldn't say that. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded so also when you have done all that you were commanded say we are unworthy servants we have only done what was our duty Jesus is saying this should have been Gideon's response right but Jesus is saying this is our response when we obey him or experience any blessing or success our attitude is I am an unworthy servant. I'm just doing my duty. It's not about my glory. It's not about my rights before you, Jesus. It's all about your glory, Jesus. It's all about the privilege that I have 
to serve you and obey you. It's a privilege to serve him and obey him. Imagine if this was Gideon's attitude. This story would go a completely different direction. <clears throat> Trusting Jesus when you are successful looks like attributing it all to him. Any success you have is ultimately from him who made you born, <laughs> led you there, gave you, equipped you with everything you needed, helped you, and then here's another gift on top of it. He lets you praise him for it. That's even a gift, that we praise him for it. Our purpose is his glory. So we can trust him when we're criticized. We can trust him when we experience success and blessing of some kind. And finally, we can trust him when we are completely lost. This is where we find Gideon by the end of this text. In our last section, things really start to get to Gideon's head. Look at verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil. And they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites, the, the people they had defeated. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700, it's almost 50 pounds, 50 pounds of gold. Besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of the, there must have been some nice collars around their necks. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest 40 years from the days of Gideon. So the people, they have an idea. And who knows, where would they have gotten this idea? Gideon, you should be our king. And Gideon's like, no, I'm not going to be your king. But then the very next breath, he says, he says uh, give me 50 pounds of gold. In the very next breath. And Gideon took this, plus a bunch of other valuables, he couldn't have used all the gold for what he's going to do. He probably kept some of it to invest in this new harem startup venture he's about to get launched. But he casts an ephod, and he puts it in his city. Now, I have a picture of an ephod, I think. should be up there, a picture of an ephod. There we go. Got this from the USB Sigma. So that's an, the ephod is that apron kind of thing, and it's got like 12 stones in it representing 12 tribes of Israel. It's got up here, you clip on the umim and thumim, where you could... Uh, in times of crisis, Israel could figure out what God wants in times of really bad crisis. Um, and here's one problem. First of all, Gideon's not supposed to be a king, right? Um, God's the one that anoints kings. He's also not supposed to be a priest. These are two offices that are God sets aside for special. Is he, he appoints people to this. You don't appoint yourself or make yourself or make yourself an ephod. And it ends up ruining Israel. Israel's rest here, their 40 years of rest, is a rest where they're not defeated by enemies, but at the same time, they are defeated by their idols. It's a, it's a new, new thing that's happening in the land of uh, Israel. So he casts this ephod, he puts it in his city, and um, we're told that Gideon's family and all Israel prostituted themselves with it. It doesn't say exactly what this looked like, but probably they made some kind of idol out of it and worshipped it, and it sounds pretty bad. Because this is coming from one of God's judges. Now, it's crazy to think, step back, this is kind of where the story of Gideon ends. There's a little bit more that we'll get to next week. But it's crazy to think about the character arc of Gideon. He's from the least of all the tribes. He's from the least of all the clans in that tribe. 
we find him hiding in a wine press. That's where the scene opens on him. He's hiding. He's scared. He's hiding in a wine press trying to get some grain. And he ends up this tragic, murderous, priest-king figure of his own making. It's almost like Heart of Darkness or Apocalypse Now by the end of Gideon's story. And it gets even worse when his son Abimelech takes over next week in this spinoff episode that's going to be really weird. Now, from what we know about Gideon and what we know about the God who is portrayed in the Bible, do you think Gideon was loved by God? Do you think that we're going to see him in heaven or the new heavens and the new earth that Jesus returns? How do you think God, knowing all that you know about Gideon and all that you know about the God of the Bible, do you think that God responds, how do you think God responds to somebody who disobeys him like this, who murders scared people, who sneakily walks around wanting to be king but not really saying the K word, but I'm actually going to act completely like it, who tries to steal his glory? Or think of the worst sin you can think of. Is there room for someone like that in God's love? Would God accept someone like Gideon? The answer, surprising to me too, is yes. <laughs> in Hebrews chapter 11, in fact, this is the only kind of people God loved. God loved. Messed up, sorry people. In Hebrews chapter 11, there's this list of the short descriptions of several people from the Old Testament. And these are the people that are commended for looking forward to Jesus, looking forward to the salvation that he would bring. And there are several names in that list that I would never expect to be there, and it makes me a little uncomfortable, actually. But here's, in verse 1132, it says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. There he is, Gideon. And Samson? That can't be right. No, Samson's in there, too. Uh, but anyway, there's Gideon. He's a mess. He's a murderer. How does he get God's love? He trusted in Jesus. He trusted in the Savior. For God, the difference between being in and being out, being rejected or being accepted, is not about how good or bad you are. It's not about a list of good things that you did being longer than the list of bad things that you did. That's not what it's about. It's not about making things right with him. It's not about following the rules. If you're someone that lives for your own glory, like I do, that's why you mess up all of your relationships. This Savior is for you. If you're someone, if you've received so many blessings in your life, you've received so much, and you've had so many successes, and you use that to bolster your own glory for your own selfish motives, for yourself, this Savior is absolutely for you. This morning, we're partaking of the Lord's Supper together, and the Lord's Supper is a meal for his people. As we take the bread and the cup, Jesus assures us through his Holy Spirit that despite all our failings and all of our grasping for our own glory, he is faithful to faithless people. We should have been punished for seeking our own glory, hurting others, but Jesus took all the punishment for that. He took all of your punishment when he died on the cross. The one who actually, who actually has the power and the glory, he set that all of aside became a human being, and died on the cross in your place. And as we reach and we take and we eat and we drink, we are proclaiming that our only hope, your only hope before God is who Jesus is and what he has done for you. And nothing inside of you can save you. It's all about him.